Welcome to Life on the Spectrum. I'm your host, Katie Benison. I'm a broadcaster, special education assistant, and the mom of two daughters, one of whom, Sophie, has autism. I'm so glad you decided to join me today for our first ever episode. I hope this will be a place you come to regularly for information, support, and inspiration for living with autism. Let's begin at the beginning. I want to talk about diagnosis, and given the complexity of autism spectrum disorder and all the different ways it can show up in a child, parents sometimes find the diagnosis process extremely overwhelming and daunting, and they wonder if it's stigmatizing, whether having a diagnosis ultimately makes a difference. On the other hand, some parents are desperate to receive a diagnosis so that they can commence treatment and start helping their child benefit from government subsidies for therapy. Navigating the diagnosis process is just something most parents of children with autism eventually have to deal with. There's a part of you that wants to know, and there's another part of you that doesn't want to know, you know? <laughs> So when you know, you can't unknow it, but also when you know, you can get access to help. When you have the diagnosis, there is an answer to many questions that you're dealing with, like, why is he behaving like this? What is it? Am I doing this right? Am I doing this wrong? You know, this is a journey that the more information, the more tools, the more resources you have along is extremely important. For me, it's taken several years to understand how to be the right parent for my son. After that diagnosis, there was certainly a grieving process around what did it mean for his future. It's about knowing, just some idea of what, what you're dealing with. And the, in the end, it's the funding and the access to different programs of schools and preschools. My kid would come home and he's like, why, why am I so upset all the time? No one else is upset. I don't get it. What's wrong with me? And when we were able to tell him, like, at least he knows he can also put a name to it, right? It's like, it's not, there's something wrong with you. You know, you need different tools and that's okay. Those were just a few of the voices from our Parent Roundtable, a group of parents of teens living with autism. And as you heard, diagnosis played a key role for each of them in unlocking treatment for their child. But still, it can be scary, right? Putting a label on your child, what does it really signify? Look, my daughter's 15, and I still remember what it felt like to receive her diagnosis. A very emotional time, and of course, a lot of questions. So in this episode, I want to take a close look at what an ASD diagnosis really means. What does the process actually involve? And what are the reasons to get a formal diagnosis if you suspect your child may be on the spectrum? Well, to help me examine some of these questions, I'm joined by Sarah Benedetti. Sarah lives in Burnaby, British Columbia. She's the mom of two young boys, Remy and Rio. And Remy was just diagnosed in May 2019 with autism. Sarah, thanks so much for joining me. You're very welcome. Happy to help. So can you tell me a little bit about Remy? First of all, how old is he? He is just over two and a half years old. His birthday is in November. When did you get the diagnosis? Uh, on a rainy day, May 17th this year. So what, if we can sort of rewind a little bit, what were some of the signs that made you seek professional help? The main sign was Remy did not eat. He was strictly on a bottle until he was two years of age with Pediasure. Formula, then Pediasure. He would not put anything in his mouth that was food-related. So how did you go from that to figuring out 
that he may need to be tested for autism. How did that come up? Um, it took some time, but it wasn't until I actually got professional help through behavioral therapy for his feeding that I was sitting in a waiting room where there was two other boys and they both had autism that was also seeking the same service. And I thought, hmm, I think I need to really push for this. Well, was there someone that suggested it to you professionally? Only one. And I had a bunch of different professionals work with Remy. It was my Burnaby infant development uh, consultant. And she said from the very beginning that Remy should be assessed for autism, which I then brought to my pediatrician at the time. And he said, absolutely no way. Remy is not autistic. So as you heard, Sarah was initially discouraged from seeking an autism diagnosis for Remy. And she listened to the experts at first, but eventually she trusted her instincts and she got a second opinion with a different pediatrician. I brought Remy to his new pediatrician who we sat down and she played with Remy and, you know, of course, you know, checked his like head circumference, weight, height, all, all the normal things a pediatrician would do. And, you know, Remy was nonverbal at this point. He just kind of babbled like a six month old would. And she said, you know, Remy, hmm. She goes, he, even though he doesn't say words, he has a conversation with you and he is social. She's like, but there's something slightly off. And because of that, I'm going to refer him to Sunny Hill. And I walked out of that office finally saying, someone sees what I see. I have an amazing son. There is just something off with him. And the eating thing is one of it. Because at this time, he was eating purees through the help of therapy. Sunny Hill Health Center for Children provides assessment and treatment for children with complex medical, physical, and developmental needs. It's a public-funded facility run through BC Children's Hospital. If you decide to go through the public health care system for autism testing, and you live in British Columbia, chances are Sunny Hill will be part of your journey. It was April, and he was going through his second round of therapy to learn how to eat solids. And I had a meeting with my Burnaby Infant Development Consultant, and I said, oh, Remy was referred to Sunny Hill. And she said, oh, that's great. She's like, are you going to, have you thought about going private? And I said, well, no, my pediatrician said nine to 12 months only. Like, I think I can wait nine months. I also thought that going private was going to be around five to $6,000. And we already just put a huge chunk of money for West Coast feeding. So I said, you know what? No, I'll, I can wait. And she goes, no, your pediatrician's wrong. She goes, you can call Sunny Hill right now and they will tell you the minimum wait time is 16 months. And she goes, and you did put a big chunk of money out, but an assessment's around two to $3,000. And I think it would be beneficial before because at this point I was also going to do speech therapy out of my own pocket. She said, before you spend any more money, spend that money towards his assessment. So I said, okay. So you went the private route and did you have any concerns about the testing process before you went in? You know what? I was just nervous. I was, I've asked Remy saw an OT, two of them. Remy saw a dietitian. Remy saw two pediatricians. And every person I asked, I said, why doesn't he eat? It was literally the million dollar question. And I just wanted an answer. And I went in saying that if Remy, positive or not, 
then I did it. At least I know I went that route. And if he didn't receive a diagnosis, then I can lay that feeling aside. And that's all I wanted from that. Sarah was nervous going in. But as soon as the assessment got underway, she felt better. I asked her to talk me through what she remembers of the process. It was different than I thought, but not in a way. It just was very, it was very light. Like, I wouldn't say it was a stressful experience. You know, we met the psychologist at her office. We went into her her actual office and there was toys. And she just started to play with Remy. And it was just a total play-based experience. And, you know, she had a bunch of different toys and Remy always navigate, like always would choose, you know, any automobile, like trucks, planes, anything with a motor and wheels like he wants. So he immediately gravitated towards a fire truck and they would just play. And she would just ask little questions to Remy um, to get him to do certain things. And sometimes Remy would do it. And sometimes Remy wouldn't. And you being there sitting and watching, I knew exactly what she'd be looking for. And I knew when Remy wasn't doing it. So what did you know that she was looking for? Saying his name several times and maybe on the fourth time, getting him to actually pay attention to her and look, you know, um, that was the big one. Asking him to do certain things like pass me the truck or roll the truck or lift the truck and he wouldn't do it. And then you see, okay, no, she wants him to do it. I mean, these are simple examples. So then she'd incorporate us in the play to get us involved in it. And he, you know, he would do fairly well when it came to us playing with him as someone obviously he's used to. Um, And then she switched to puzzles and matching. And he did fairly well with that, but would lose interest extremely quickly. And she was timing every single puzzle or matching game that he did. And then there was snack time, which he did not participate in at all. A little bit of sensory, so touching certain things, sounds, having something louder, um, the eye contact, so she'd have bubbles and seeing if he can follow. Um, It was about an hour and 15 minutes of that. And then there was a break and then it was going to be the um, parent questionnaire part. So I know with a lot of the psychiatrists that I talked to, they can either do like different days where they have just the child assessment and then they have the parent assessment later. Um, I chose to do it in all one day. So it was about three hours in total we were there. In Sarah's case, the diagnostic process delivered the news that Remy had autism. And though the news was bittersweet, it brought Sarah the clarity she had been looking for. In one way, I felt like my world came crumbling down. And on the other way, I wanted to like jump and do like, like just be in excitement because it was like, finally, I got that answer that I, that I needed, that I needed to hear that my son did not eat because he has autism. I also found that, you know, I had a lot of support. People, you know, as soon as they, you know, when my family found out, I mean, we're a tight knit family, so they were there for me and then they would tell people and I'd be getting messages from a lot of people and saying, I'll connect you with this person. My friend, son has autism or this and that. And instantly you do feel like you're part of a community. As you can probably tell by now, Sarah is a pretty proactive mom. So she set about lining up speech and behavior therapists for Remy right away. 
And so now, how's it going since you've been receiving, now you've received the diagnosis? Are certain things becoming easier? Are you noticing a difference? I don't feel like it's easy until the program's set because I feel like I'm very unsettled, as in I don't know what it looks like for myself for when the therapy happens since it's done in my home and I am not to be pretty much in the same room. You got to let them do their own thing. That's where I feel unsettled as well as what does it look like for Remy? Again, we're dealing with human beings. So someday Remy is not in the mood to play and kind of just wants to veg on the couch all day. So that makes me unsettled. But I think as time goes on, it will get better. And speech therapy has been now done for one month and I'm seeing a huge difference. So I can only imagine the difference that having the behavioral therapy and, you know, working with these people will do. I think the biggest part is him getting used to so many people coming in and out of the house, but he loves to play and he loves people. So it can't be that big of a deal for him. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and I wish you good luck. It sounds like you're really on your way. You're doing an awesome job of looking at all the options. And I know that people listening will really appreciate your perspective as they take their own journey to figure out autism spectrum disorder. Dr. Nicole Ritchie Stiles is a grouse grind enthusiast and the mom of three young children. She's also a registered psychologist working at the Fraser Development Clinic, which is a private clinic in New Westminster, British Columbia. As part of the team at FDC, Nicole conducts complex developmental and behavioral condition assessments, including diagnosis testing for autism. Nicole is also a qualified specialist for the BC Autism Assessment Network. I've asked Nicole to join me to talk about the ins and outs of getting a child assessed for autism. Hi, Nicole. Welcome to Life on the Spectrum, the Autism Family Podcast. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. When parents come to your office, what would you say is the number one concern they express about the diagnosis testing process? Um, So I think in terms of concerns, I think parents are very interested in getting an answer, getting a very clear yes or no so that they can move forward and they can really start treating and providing some intervention for their children um, who clearly have some challenges. So what would you say is the main benefit to the child of receiving a formal autism diagnosis? So I think for children, the autism uh, diagnosis in BC is tied to funding. And so for lots of families, that opens up lots of doors um, to purchase services for therapies for interventions. Also in the school, it opens up doors for further support, one-on-one support, depending on the child. And so it can really be a bit of a door opener in terms of getting some real clear answers about whether or not their child has autism. For parents that are waiting or uh, thinking about coming in for a, a diagnosis, can you describe what the actual process is? Because I know there's you know, a few different things that they, they do. Right. When they come in. Yeah. So there's a few different components. Um, first, the psychologist would want to spend quite a bit of time with the parents, asking lots of different questions. And then there'll be lots of time spent with the child, um, where we will do a series of different activities. And then the final part is feedback, where we're sharing results of the assessment with the parents. Okay. So let's start with the the parent part. It's 
Is it, it's called the ADIR? Correct. That's our kind of lingo for it. It stands for Autism Diagnostic Interview. And then it's currently in its second revision, hence the R for revised. And this is where the psychologist or clinician has an opportunity to ask the parents all sorts of things about how their what their child's communication skills are like, what their social interaction skills are like, and whether or not there's a presence of what's called restricted or repetitive behavior. So this is a category where um, some kids might um, flap their hands or engage in other stereotypical mannerisms. They might have fixated interests on things. So maybe all they want to do is talk about or play with dinosaurs, for example. Um, it includes the sensory sensitivities that we know are so common in lots of little ones and older ones with an autism diagnosis. And we would ask questions about eye contact and whether or not there's gestures. And when a child wants something, how do they go about getting that? Are they asking parents verbally? Are they pulling hands towards the fridge, for example? Are they using their eyes? All those sorts of things. Um, it's a really nice opportunity for parents to share lots about what's happening in their day-to-day -day lives with their kids. So then the next step is meeting the child, I guess. When the child comes in for testing, whether it's private or public. When the child comes in, that's really when the fun starts. Um, you know, I think anyone who works with kids, that's that's really what they like the most is actually interacting with, with children. So we are looking at um, kind of problem solving um, using words and language. So kind of verbal problem solving as well as some visual tasks. So looking at blocks and trying to copy some blocks. Um, looking at patterns and maybe trying to match some pictures. And then, you know, if a child's verbal and they're able to answer some questions, maybe answering some questions about how old they are or something like that. Um, it's really just an estimate, but it is an opportunity to kind of enter into the testing at the table if kids are ready. And it gives us lots of really helpful information for moving forward, regardless of whether there's a diagnosis coming or not. Um, after we finish with the developmental testing, you know, if the child needs a break, we have them take a break. And then we'll kind of change the room around a little bit. So we're, we're utilizing something that's called the ADOS. So it's the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule. And it's really a play-based assessment. It starts, our very youngest module is for, it's considered the toddler module. It's for kids between the ages of 12 to 30 months that are either pre-verbal or have single words. So what types of things will you do with those kids? So with this one, we start off with something that's called free play, where we, quite honestly, we have toys scattered on the ground so that we'll have a dump truck, we'll have some balls, we'll have some other kind of nondescript items. And we really are interested, we kind of, I ask parents to kind of sit back, you know, um, not to direct the play or to direct the activities, um, so it's somewhat counterintuitive to parenting and especially parenting young children where you want to point out things and you want to express interest in things, but we really want to see what the toddler is in, um, is interested in on their own. What kind of spontaneous initiation are they taking with these materials? So what types of materials would you be using? So we would like balls, you know, did they take a ball and maybe initiate a game of catch with mom or dad, or possibly with me as the examiner, do they line up their balls? Do they put their balls in the dump truck and then repetitively dump it out? And that's their play. Does the dump, dump truck go back and forth and maybe it crashes and there's a big noise? You know, all those sorts of things. We're really just observing what their play is like, what their initiation is like. Um, are they using words during that time? Are they saying truck? 
you know, and and when they're saying truck, are they coordinating that with a point? Are they looking at mom or dad? Or are they not engaging with the materials at all and just seem to be quite interested in the door stopper that's in the corner of the office? Okay. And so if they're slightly older, mm -hmm. so from three years to six years old, right. then what would you do? Yeah. So let's say you've got um, a four-year-old who's speaking um, in little short phrases. Um, there's a greater opportunity for a few more kind of table tasks. We're still playing with them. We're still trying to get a sense of, uh, you know, what their eye contact is like and what their language is like and if they're using any gestures. Um, but we are able to engage in a bit more conversation. So I'm interested to see if I put out a conversational bid, for example, if that child will pick up on that bid and, you know. So give, give me an example. Pretend I'm five. What would you ask me? So I wouldn't actually ask you anything. Oh. I would say something. So I might say something like, my favorite color is pink. And then I would be kind of waiting and wondering if you might say, oh, my favorite color is purple. And we could have a little conversation about color or something like that, or favorites, favorite colors. Um, so it's kind of putting out um, statements as opposed to direct questions, which can quite often turn into a bit of a Q&A, but it's really just making a comment and seeing, oh, is that is that child kind of observing and listening? And do they respond? And do, do, we, want, do we have a little social interaction going there? Really, we're looking at what is our eye contact like? Um, and then we're observing, um, are there um, stereotyped mannerisms? So any hand flapping or repetitive jumping up and down, do they get really fixated on a certain topic? You do the testing process and then the final part is the results. Can right. you speak about that? So kind of overall, when it's time for feedback, um, this is where we share the results. So, um, you know, is it a yes or a no for the most part? And then um, we talk about kind of what to do next in terms of steps for intervention, helping parents and giving them some information about how to access their funding through the government. And those feedback sessions can be um, tearful. Uh, they can be tearful for a number of reasons. Lots of families are kind of hoping to get a diagnosis because they've known for a, quite a while that there's something a little bit different with their child. Um, other families are completely taken aback uh, you know, they they weren't expecting it. So, you know, there can be a very wide range of emotions, as I'm sure you can imagine. If I'm giving a diagnosis for an older child, I typically don't have them in the room for for the first part of the feedback. I never like the idea of talking about a child while they're sitting in the waiting room. So I typically say to parents, you know, let's say it's an 18-year-old, I would say, um, you know, let's talk just on our own as parents and clinician. And then I'm more than happy to have you bring your child back and I can go over things in child-friendly language if that's something that the teen wants and if that's something that the parents want. Depending on their whole makeup, sometimes kids kind of 9, 10, 11, 12, I think it's really important information for them to learn about themselves when parents feel that they're ready. Yeah. There is a climb in diagnosis rates right now. Why do you think there's such a rise in kids coming in for testing? There's a lot of talk within kind of the professional community that people are just much more aware of autism as a diagnosis, um, and people are maybe more willing to access testing. There's been some discussion that the tools are becoming a bit more refined, and, and maybe people are doing a better job of kind of 
finding it. What are you hearing from parents about wait times to get tested in BC publicly? Yeah, so um, I think the kind of information that's out there for public consumption is that it takes about 14 to 18 months for families to go through um, public testing. Private testing, there still absolutely is a wait list. Uh, my general sense of that is it's between six and nine months. Whether parents decide to go public or private, mm -hmm. what can they do if they are up against a longer wait list for testing? You know, during that waiting time, I think it can be very frustrating for families. Um, but if there are um, services and interventions that they can access, so um, there can be publicly funded speech language therapy that they could get their child involved with. If there's resources available within the family, um, they might have the opportunity to purchase private speech and language therapy. They can go to social groups, play groups, strong start library groups, all those sorts of things, preschool, daycare, all those things to kind of increase socialization with other same age peers. I think that would be a really good use of families' time and resources. It's important for us that families feel, you know, really welcome and really taken care of when they're going through the process. We know that it's a very challenging process. Families wait a long time to get the assessment. And, you know, it's my job as a clinician to, to take them through it as properly as I can, but also with with a big heart and, uh, and, and we hope that families feel that. Yeah, so thank you very much for having me, Katie. I've really enjoyed it. I've been speaking with Dr. Nicole Ritchie-Stiles from the Fraser Development Clinic. I hope after listening to this interview, you're starting to feel a little bit more informed about the diagnosis process and getting a sense of some of the reasons to pursue a diagnosis. Now, before we move on, I want to bring someone else into this conversation about diagnosis. Allow me to introduce you to Andrew. The things that kids found interesting and did a lot of, um, I didn't. Um, so my, my set of um, hobbies would be very narrow, but very um, intense. Andrew is someone who's pretty certain he's on the spectrum, even though he's never been tested or formally diagnosed. He was born and spent the first few years of his life in Korea before moving to Vancouver, Canada in grade three. Nowadays, he's a successful software developer. Andrew's mother taught him a lot of his social skills, and he taught himself the rest. I wanted to get his take on diagnosis. Andrew, welcome to Life on the Spectrum. Thanks for having me. So let's get back to your childhood. And what were some of the ways you were different from the kids around you? I was different um, in a sense that um, my speech development was slower um, than the rest of my cl classmates. Um, and I would say social interaction came slowly. When, um, when I was in preschool um, and my parents went for the first teacher's parents meeting, I guess I haven't spoken in class by that point. So my teacher asked my parents if I could speak, like if I was a mute or not. How did your parents respond? I, I was told that uh, my mom did bring me to a doctor even before preschool to see if I had some learning disability or if there was anything wrong with me. Um, but at that time, like autism, I don't think was that well known in South Korea. And the doctor just said, oh, yeah, he'll he'll eventually, you know, develop and come around. So don't worry too much about it. Um, I must have been like my my son's age, like two and a half or so probably back then. So 
what did your parents do when the doctor said, oh, don't worry about it, he'll catch up? What did your mom decide to do? I think um, my mom, I think that kind of um, made her relax a bit more. Um, but I, I think from her point of view, she kind of see, saw it as, okay, you know, I might have to spend more time with um, Andrew to make sure that He's taught the uh, linguistic skills as well as um, people interaction skills, social skills. So I think she kind of doubled her efforts to make sure that I learned um, what I needed to learn um, to do well in school. So what sorts of things would she teach you? The main thing would be besides, you know, I'm assuming just lots of you know, learn, learning to speak well. Um, it would be simple things like to make eye contact when you speak to someone else, because I, I would I think just avoid eye contact um, most of the time. I that carried on quite a, quite a bit later. Or um, I would I would be I wouldn't speak to other people. Um, interact, be proactive about you know, introducing myself and getting to know others. Um, and that's something that she kind of kind of coaxed, I guess, slowly, um, and, but consistently um, to say, you know, you, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. Uh, when, I, when you're young, you kind of take it as nagging. Um, but as you grow up, you kind of look back and you appreciate some of the efforts that were put into uh, that stage of development. So when do you think it was that you noticed that something was different? I noticed that I probably in elementary school, um, the things that kids found interesting and did a lot of I didn't. Um, so my set of um, hobbies would be very narrow, but very um, intense. Um, and that, that's true to, to even this day. So um, for example, like if when I got into chess, um, you know, I would play chess even as a very young person for three hours straight with someone else um, without losing concentration. Or when I got into computers, that's all I would do till wee hours of the morning. So when, when that kind of stuff happens and then you kind of see the world and talk about um, when you make discussions um, with your colleagues or your friends or um, your schoolmates, you just kind of notice that the things that you're interested in talking about and the things that fascinate you isn't necessarily what people, um, your peers find interesting. You are one of the rare people that basically had therapy from your mother at home. What would you say in this day and age to parents that think their child may be on the spectrum, what advice would you give to them? Um, first, get the diagnosis because it's important to know what you're dealing with, like, and the severity. Um, maybe I was, um, maybe I had, as much, as much as I hate the term, like high-functioning autism, or maybe I had something else. Maybe I just had, had severe, like, delay in speech and social interaction kind of development. but. It's important to know what you're dealing with, so you know what kind of help you can get, um, and try to get as much help as possible. Because, as I said, um, as I told my sister and you know my wife that if I didn't get the extensive, like if I didn't have my mom like staying home and taking care of me pretty much full time in my development cycle, um, I don't think I would have turned out nearly as well as I did uh, as I have. What do you think are the downsides of not being tested for you? It would have been a lot bigger relief for me, um, just kind of understanding why I wasn't quite like others. Um, so from that perspective, I think it would have made some parts of my like um, youth easier, um, just to know that I'm like, oh, okay, so maybe th like this is a diagnosis, this is what I have to work on. 
um, I kind of knew what I needed to work on, but at the same time, it would have been nice to know um, why I was lagging behind in some areas. We flash forward to now, and you've had a hugely successful career. How do you think your autism has helped fuel your work? I would like to say that it's not all downsides um, to being different. Even though I have I had difficulty um, socializing with others, a lot of times our society rewards um, someone who digs deep and learns about and masters certain areas. And uh, I firmly believe that my ability to, my single-mindedness uh, in terms of narrow interest and digging really deep into whatever I was interested in um, allowed me to succeed um, in whatever area that I was interested in. Um, so, you know, computer is a very frustrating kind of an experience for a lot of people. You know, if something doesn't work, you know, they get frustrated and people give up. But um, autism can work in both ways. If you are very, like, if you have that ten tendency to be single-minded and just be in that narrow focus, you can do great things um, that might elude a you know, person that does has, a, say, a shorter um, attention span. <laughs> Andrew, it's really been a pleasure having you. And thank you so much for sharing your journey with Life on the Spectrum. Thanks for having me. This is episode one of Life on the Spectrum, the Autism Family Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Benison, and you've been listening to my conversation with Andrew about what it was like to grow up on the spectrum without a formal diagnosis. If you like what you've been hearing, please share it with your family and friends and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please add a review too because it really helps us reach more people living on the spectrum. Well, that's it for today. Our next episode will be all about the social challenges of autism. I hope you'll join us for that. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>